Good morning. I'm going to start off this morning by uh, reading our passage. It's going to come out of uh, the the book of Titus, the letter of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Um, at this, uh, this stage in the letter, uh, the Apostle Paul has written this letter to, to his friend, to his fellow worker in the gospel named Titus, and, and he wrote the letter in order to help Titus kind of uh, be encouraged and figure out how is he going to work out leading the church that, that he was left in charge of and, and helping them out, and, and what are the things he needed to teach these people the way they live their lives. Uh, but at this point in Titus, Paul grounds all of these teachings, all of this instruction of they need to do this and live this way and consider these things. He grounds all of this in what we see here in, in Titus chapter 2 and, and, the, and the beauty and the promise of, of what's here. So if you, if you want to join me again, that's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And there the apostle Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that that are his very own, eager to do what is good. There is a, there's a story told uh, about a group of British scholars who had gathered one day, and, and they were debating whether or not Christianity brings anything unique to the table uh, when, when you kind of look across the scope of world religion. They asked the question, is there anything that Christianity teaches or says or, or holds true that, that you really don't find anywhere else uh, across the world? And so they kind of started interacting with the, kind of the major doctrines, the major pillars of Christianity, and, and thought about the incarnation, or thought about the, the all-powerful nature of God, thought about the, the struggle between good and evil. And they, as they kept going through these, they kept saying, well, yes, those are, those are good, but, but you find elements of that, you find expressions of that in, in different world religions. So they continued to pursue this question, is there anything unique that Christianity brings to the table? And as the story goes at this point, uh, C.S. Lewis enters the room. C.S. Lewis, of course, is the, the, the famous Christian uh, scholar and theologian and author, most famously of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he kind of starts walking around the room and, and finally uh, is listening in and, and, he, and he decides to enter the, ba- the debate. So he turns to this group and he says, what's, what's all this rumpus about? In kind of this classic grumpy British kind of way. And, and so they, they put this question to Lewis, is there, well, you know, C.S. Lewis, is there anything unique about the Christian faith? And they expected him to have the same struggle, like to, to sit down and to really argue over a battle over, not really be sure what to say. Uh, but Lewis shocked them. So Lewis surprised them by immediately having an answer because he said, oh, yes, that, that's easy. The, the unique thing about Christianity is, is grace. It's grace. This, this strange and special distinctive of the Christian faith, the, the notion that God's unconditional love is this free gift with no strings attached, not as a reward or, or not as some sort of uh, something you've done in order to, to be accepted by the Lord and, and with no discernible profit to God, this, this grace is given. In fact, not only is there no discernible profit to God, but often if you look at it, there is, there is great cost. There's great and painful cost to the Lord for sharing with us this grace. Lewis believed that this was something unheard of and something incredible when compared to the other religions throughout the world. And, and I believe that, that he was on to something. I believe he was correct. That grace holds something special in, in, the, in the realm of what we believe in, in specifically to Christianity. And this morning we're going to ask ourselves, as we continue this series, this Advent series, we've been asking, what was on the heart of God? What was God thinking at, at that first Christmas when he gave us such incredible things? And this morning we'll look at that in relation to God and his grace that he gave us 
on that, on that first Christmas uh, when, when he gave us this unimaginable, amazing gift of grace and, and even consider what is grace and how does it change our lives? How might it change our lives as we, as we move into a greater understanding of what it is? So again, in, in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And this, this, this phrase, this grace of God, is, is one of those indescribably precious and, and priceless biblical promises that all too often, really, we don't spend enough time kind of slowing down and thinking about it and really asking ourselves, do we understand what the Bible is telling us when it says the grace of God has been given to us? And part of that is because we, we, we assume we know what it means, so we just start attaching this idea of grace onto a lot of our, our daily habits. You know, we say grace over a meal when we're trying to, to pray and, and, and express thankfulness for what God has given, or, or compliment people who are kind or forgiving or, or, or who seem to, to go about life with just elegance and confidence when we say, oh, they're, you know, they're so graceful. We tend to think of grace as something along the lines of courteousness or goodwill or, or a willingness to simply let things go. And, and all of those are good and, and true to an extent, but it barely scratches the surface of what Paul is saying here when he speaks about grace in relation to God. Because this exact phrase, the grace of God, it appears 15 times throughout the New Testament, and every time it refers specifically, specifically to God's unmerited favor given to us. Specifically to God's unmerited favor given to us. Grace is God's loving intent toward us and his work for us, right? His loving intent toward us and his work on our behalf. Grace is God's plan to save us, his willingness to forgive us, and his commitment to instructing us in the ways that we should live. The grace of God is the unearned and undeserved love, compassion, care, devotion, attention, and blessings. It's all of these things that God gives each and every one of us each and every day. All of this is included, and much more, in this boundless idea of God's incredible grace and unconditional love. Now, conceptually, a lot of us can probably understand this and get on board with that. Like, okay, cool, grace is all these great things that God gives us. I'm, I'm into that. Let's, let's keep that. But uh, when it comes to grace, accepting that this is something that, you know, that, that the good things that God does for us, that's not necessarily the difficult part. That's not necessarily the part we struggle, struggle with and un- to understand. Because the difficult part is that all of these gifts of grace are wrapped up in those words unmerited, undeserved, unearned. And being in that place of receiving something so precious that we did nothing to earn, and in fact, not only did nothing to earn, but oftentimes do things that really ought to make us unworthy of such a gift, being in that place, that's really difficult and and really uncomfortable for some of us. See, because in in our pull yourself by uh, by your bootstraps kind of culture that we have, right, where we venerate the self-made man or venerate the self-made woman, the surprising gift of grace can leave us shocked and, and really even a little unsure of, of how, what we're supposed to do with this. How are we supposed to interact with this gift that God has given us? What we receive by grace is not due to us because of all the, the good we do or the rules we follow or, or how hard we work at being a Christian. The grace of God comes first. It, becomes, it comes before any of that. Before we ever have an idea of what it might mean to live righteously or live according to the will of God, there comes the grace of God before any of that. The mystery and the majesty of the grace of God is that it's given to us even while we are still enemies of God, while we're still opposed to him. And so grace reaches us long before we ever search 
for the Lord. And it continues to shape us and change us even while we struggle to live a life reflecting it, worthy of it, in response to what we've been given. When I was in seminary, one of my, uh, one of my classes required us to read this book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, or yeah, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with Philip Yancey, he's a great, great writer, great Christian writer and thinker. He's, uh, he used to be an editor for Christianity Today, uh, just really one of the truly great, great voices and, and, and great writers of our time. And, uh, and I remembered as I was prepping for the sermon, I was like, oh, I've read this book all about grace. I should go grab it, and I'll have like all these things that I could share. It'll be great. And so I ran over to my shelf and uh, went down to the bottom shelf because my bookshelf is alphabetized by author because I'm civilized. <laughs> all right. And I've organized it that way. Um, so I went down last shelf, last place. There's Yancey. Pull it out. And I'm like, okay, it would be really great if, if past Sam has done present Sam just a super solid favor by, by highlighting or annotating something awesome that I can share with everybody but, buddy, this morning. And so I pull the book out and I start flipping through it. And, and my attention was immediately drawn, not necessarily to something that Yancey had written down, uh, but what I had scribbled in the margins uh, again and again on, on various different pages. Because over and over again, I found notes that were, were basically all the similar idea. And what they said was, as I read about grace, every time it was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to accept this. I don't know how to live like this. As if, as if all of these promises of grace that Nancy is talking about that come from Scripture, that come as promises of God, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. See, because Yancey over and over again is clear about the fact that you can't earn God's grace. You can't make yourself eligible for this gift. It's freely given. It's given out of love. And within the first few pages, Yancey uh, makes this point that to be a Christian means you've got to learn to accept grace and delight in the undeserved delight in the undeserved. And, and I'll be honest, delighting in the undeserved, that was not something that I felt at that time, and it was not even something I was sure I, I really wanted to learn to interact with. That, sound, that sounded very odd and strange and difficult to me. The problem was, the problem was and if, I, if I'm honest, the problem often still is, that, that I, perhaps like some of you, I have this craving to earn favor. I have this craving to earn the things that, that are given to me. To be good enough that something is owed to me by someone, even if that someone is God himself. To live my life in such a way that people want to be around me, they want me to be around because I'm useful, right? Because, because I bring something to the table and I am, I am worthy to receive what they're going to give me. I, I live this way and I live with the struggle of I want to prove that I'm worth being in this place, that, that people want me around because of the things that I can do. But the grace of God doesn't work like that. It's not a reward. It's not a wage that we receive for something we've done. To receive this grace, you have to be willing to let go of your need to earn. You have to be willing to let go of your need to prove or to demand something that is due to you. You have to humble yourself. And you have to be willing to delight in receiving something so amazing, even though you know you have no business being blessed by something this good. So, in reality, here, here, right here in Titus 2, here's your first Christmas gift. And the grace of God comes back around to just simply this, God cares about you. God loves you. And God has made his grace available to you. And so what Paul urges Titus here and what, what is passed down to us is that we are to take hold of this gift of grace and receive it and be glad of it. And when we do, it will change everything. 
But before we go into to looking how might grace, what, what is it going to change in our lives? What, what will accepting this gift do to our lives? We need to stop and, and look at this word appeared in verse 11. Because the, verse, the, the word appeared in verse 11, uh, it's, a, it's just this tiny little word, but it changes the nature of how we see this grace. And, and it, makes an, it makes it an even bigger deal than, than, it might, than we might consider already. The Greek word here translated as appeared has a very specific meaning throughout Greek literature. It was used to describe the arrival of a powerful hero or even a god breaking into the story and showing up at just the right moment to save the helpless and rescue those in need and bring about the happy ending that everyone wanted to hear and see. Right? Appeared was used that way in this Greek literature. And so Paul borrows the same word. But when he uses it throughout his writings in the New Testament, right, and he says the grace of God has appeared, He's talking about a definitive moment, a, a, a moment in, in time and in space and in history when the grace of God appeared. And what he's saying is, is, is this hero, this person, he has appeared and he's changed everything. And so it leads us to this question, who has appeared? Who is this hero bringing with him the fullness of God's love and, the, and, and, and all of this undeserved uh, favor, all of this grace? Well, in Luke chapter 2, we, uh, we get the answer to that question. In Luke chapter 2, it says, starting in verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The grace of God has appeared, and we know this grace to be Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, and we know it to be Jesus Christ. Jesus is the love of God. He's the kindness of God. He's the forgiveness of God, the goodness of God, the provision of God. Jesus is the glory of God. He's the ultimate gift of God that offers salvation to you and to me and to everyone. The grace of God has appeared, and he will change everything. The unearned favor he comes to give us is the power that can transform our lives, to reshape every last bit of our character, our identity, to change our hearts, our souls, our minds, to redefine what it means for us to have strength and use it. It changes. He changes everything. This week, you are sure to be very busy, right? It's just the nature of what this, this season brings. You'll have, you'll have uh, plans to make. You'll have houses to get ready. You'll have traveling to do. You're going to run all over town, last minute gifts, get all that done, except for some of you who are very good and already ordered all your things for Amazon. You're finished and you're basking in the glory of that achievement. Most of us, though, are going to be running around and doing these things. In the midst of all this Christmas chaos, I challenge you to find five minutes, just five minutes. You can do more if you want, but I challenge you to find five minutes and slow down try to enter into a quiet space. And, and that's whatever that means for you, whether that means literal quiet space or taking a walk or, or whatever it allows you to move into and enter into a space where you can try to connect with God. And as you do that, go to him in prayer, go to him in this time and simply thank him for this gift of grace. 
take the time to express to him what it means to you that he would give you his love, that he would give you his compassion, that he would give you his son who brings salvation for all. Take the time this week as we move toward the celebration of the coming of Christ to thank God for the gift that he gives at Christmas. The rest of the passage goes on to provide a a few specific examples of just what grace does in our lives. So again, in verse 11, it ended with, the grace of God has appeared and it offers salvation to all people. And I mentioned this briefly before, but it's worth repeating. This unmerited favor of God, it is given to everyone. It's given to everyone. Salvation is an offer made to all people. No matter who you are, no matter your race, your gender, your, your class, your position, your authority, no matter your ability, your health, or any other measure that humanity can come up with to, to try to create status, to try, try to create position, the, the gospel, God's grace, is extended to you. Salvation has been made available to you. This means that even at your worst, Jesus is still there to offer forgiveness. Right? This means that even when you're utterly lost and caught up in all of the, just the shabby, cheap junk that this world tries to convince us is worth our time or worth our devotion, Jesus is still there looking to you and saying, please come follow me. Please come accept this grace. You don't have to change a single thing about yourself to somehow try to like trick or convince God into thinking, okay, this one really is someone that I want to love. All right. The ludicrously breathtaking thing about grace is that it is given and, and waiting to, for us to, to receive it even before you do a single thing, like repent. Grace is there before you, even you really understand what your sin is and how you need to change. Now, and, and I, I want to be clear, don't get me wrong, it's not that nothing will change because of grace. All right? Grace is going to make demands on your life and, and, and call you to change and conform more to the way that God wants you to live. But that will come out of a response to that grace, not as a qualification to receive it. The order of operations here is important. The grace comes first, and we are transformed by what we receive. I have, uh, I have two daughters, a, a two-year-old and a nine-month-old, and uh, I and my wife both have found it incredibly difficult to stop buying Christmas gifts for them this year. Any of you have gone down the, the, like, the aisle at Aldi where like, all that cool stuff is, and it's just like, here's a cool toy, and just, they know what they're doing. And uh, my wife and I actually this week have to sit down and decide which gifts uh, our oldest, Abigail, is going to get and which ones have to wait (laughs) until her birthday in April because we've bought one or two more than really she should be getting all at once, uh, all at once this year. But the thing is, we're just, we're so excited to give these gifts to our girls. We're so excited to wrap them up and watch them tear the wrapping off and just smile and giggle and laugh and, and receive joy from these things that we've given them. And this has nothing to do with the fact that they've earned anything we're putting under the tree. Right, again, two years old and nine months old. They are not constructively contributing a lot to the household at this point <laughs> in their lives. And, but I want to give them these things because I love them. And I want to see them happy. Each present is just this, this small token of our enormous heart for them. And, and if I've figured this out, if I've unlocked the secret of giving gifts to the ones I love is good and beautiful and fun and expresses wonderful things, how much more will the God who is himself love give an incredible gift to us? How much more is this gift of grace an incredible expression of who he is and how much he loves us? The grace of God has appeared out of this incredible love. Grace offers salvation to all people, including you. 
So I encourage you to accept it, to rejoice in it, and to learn to delight in the undeserved. In verse 12, we see that the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us how to live. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God is a free gift, but it does make demands on how we're going to live. Not because, again, not because it somehow qualifies us for this grace that we've received, but because repentance and obedience and transformation, these are the right-hearted responses to receiving a gift such as grace. Grace comes first, and then we respond with these changes. Our life changes because of this gift we've received. Grace teaches us, it trains us to say no to the things that lead us to disobey the will of God. And this, this no that's here in this passage is not just like, a, no, that's, no thanks, that's not for me, you know, I'll pass. The, the, the word here is really a, a renouncing. It is, it is a full rejection of these things that are coming our way that might lead us to walk away from the Lord or live a life opposed to his will. The verb tense here actually in this passage would indicate that not only is this no a decisive act, but it is an ongoing daily commitment to figuring out how we are going to reject the things that are not of the Lord. If you consider doing something that disobeys the commands of God, if if you consider doing something that breaks the heart of God, that demands your devotion be pulled away from him, then you have to learn how to commit to saying no to those things, to those actions, to those desires. And you have to recall, not only do you want to say no, but you have to recall that the better thing is to say yes and walk toward the Lord, walk toward the gift of Christ. Now, if we're honest, 99% of the time, it, it really just isn't all that hard to figure out what is ungodly and what is of a worldly passion. Sometimes we like to like tell ourselves, well, this is kind of a gray area. We're sure Really, a lot of times, it really is fairly easy to say, this is wrong, or this is bad, or I need not to do this. Right? You know that it is ungodly to lie and cheat and steal. Right? You know that it's ungodly to look down on others, and to gossip, and to speak in a way that is hurtful to one another. You know that it is ungodly to be sexually immoral, or to be relationally cruel, or to be abusive in any way. You know it's ungodly to hold beliefs that lead yourself down the paths of things like racism or cultural superiority or political fanaticism. You know these things are are plagued with ungodliness. You know that these are things that can lead you away from the Lord. You know the sins that you struggle the most to, to give up and get away from. And you can hear your conscience cry out when you start to do these things that you know are wrong. And if you've been a Christian for, for, for a while, you may even know how to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit, however he may speak to you, whether it's, whether it's in a voice or whether it's with a feeling or a prompting or a word from, from a trusted friend. And you know that when that voice comes and, 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 it's, and it's interacting with you on these things that are ungodly and you should not do, you feel this or you hear the sense of don't do this thing. Walk away from this thing. And not only walk away from it, but walk toward, back toward the way of Christ. The grace of God has appeared and it teaches us how to live, how to say no to these things, but it also teaches us what to take up instead. In relation to ourselves, we pursue self-control. In relation to others, we pursue uprightness, making sure our actions are loving and kind and good. In relation to God, we pursue godly living, right living, out of an obedience responding to this grace we've received. Living this way, with self-control, uprightness, and godliness, it is the evidence that we are truly learning from and being transformed by this gift of grace. 
A gift received in love still has to be accepted, right? It still has to be opened and enjoyed. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get the iPad this Christmas and then just like leave it on the box on the table and expect it to like do all the things it's supposed to and you know change all the things it's supposed to. Whether or not you really want an iPad to change all the things in your life, that's that's up to you. But you have to accept it. You have to open it. You have to let it start showing you all the things it can do and, and experience all the stuff that it can do and, and how it can change things. Grace won't change anything if you refuse it. Grace won't change anything if you don't willingly embrace it. You have to be willing to let the grace of God, to let Jesus teach you the best way to live your life and then give that, that way of life your best shot. And the good news is that even when you fail, there will still be more grace to help you move through that time and get back on your feet and get back on the way of following the Lord. At verse 13, we are reminded that the grace of God has appeared, and, and it tells us, it reminds us of who we are and who we expectantly wait to return. Verse 13 says, uh, while we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own. Christians are people who wait expectantly for the return of Christ. Right? We look forward to the coming of this blessed hope. And that is not a wish. That is not a daydream. This is not some fantasy we've come up with. Biblical hope is a watchful anticipation of something we are sure is going to happen. Right? We, we are sure this is going to happen. Just as we are sure that the grace of God appeared on that silent night in that little town of Bethlehem, our declaration is that it will appear again. He will appear again. And this time, when that grace comes, he will come with the full glory of God around him. The grace of God has saved you. It has made you a member of God's family. And that same grace will save you a spot in God's eternal kingdom. But until that day, until that day when that glory returns, we also must live in light of the truth. The last little bit there in verse 14, the grace of God has appeared and it makes us eager to do what is good. Again, Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify himself for a people, uh, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Take a moment to consider how radical this idea is and how radical it makes Christianity. We do not practice a faith that teaches us that to get the most out of God, we have to somehow placate him because he's withholding. We have to somehow figure out all the ways to like hit all the right buttons so that we get what we want from God. And we don't live out a life that prioritizes our prosperity at the expense of others. And we do not worship a savior who demands that we build up an earthly empire with, with high walls so that we can bring all the good people, the, the right kind of people in and, and shove all the wrong kind of people out. The grace of God has appeared and it makes us eager excited and energized and commissioned by the Holy God to go out into the world and do good. To go out into the world and be good. To create good. Do you love what is good? Do you love to do what is good? Do you love to do what is kind? Do you love to do uh, service to others with no expectation of having that service being returned in some way? Do you love to give the gift of patience or listening with loving compassion to provide for the needs of others? And, and do you love to tell people that the reason you're so committed to these things is because you know that this is the way that Jesus treats you, that the grace of God brings you this goodness, and so you are ready to pass it on to others?
This is one of the things that I love most about being a Christian and about following Jesus is that I am not made into someone who needs to be a self-righteous judge. All right? Our faith does not turn me into someone who needs to be, who, who desires to be, who's driven by this idea that I have to be a religiously superior person. I don't have to spend a single moment of my life being hateful or being cruel or being unjust or being bitter or being worried about getting more than the person next to me or being better than the next person up. I get to be good because God asks me to be good. I get to do good things for others because that is what the Lord of creation asks me to do, demands that I do. The life that he's transforming me into is someone who's committed eagerly to do good works. I get to take God's grace given to me freely and share it freely with someone else. The grace of God has appeared and thanks be to God, it changes everything for us. So may the grace of God change you in profound and beautiful ways this Christmas. May Jesus be near to you and may your eagerness to do good and grow and grow in that goodness every day until his glorious return is complete. Would you pray with me now? Father God, thank you for the blessing of your grace. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who was given to us humbly, lovingly, sacrificially. Lord, teach us to love your grace even when we don't understand how you could give us something so precious that we do not deserve and certainly have not earned. Teach us to live our lives in joyous response to your love eager to do what is good, forever changed for the better by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.